Please take your Bible and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 one more time. We have been studying the book of Luke throughout uh, this past year, but I've taken a break just for these uh, couple of summer months. We're in 2 Timothy 3 today, just a passage behind where we expected we would be due to my sickness a few weeks ago, and we'll wrap up this book in a few weeks here. <clears throat> 2 Timothy was probably written about 30 years or so after Jesus died, was buried, and rose again and ascended to heaven, and uh, he... Uh, sent the Holy Spirit shortly after his ascension to heaven, and the Holy Spirit has come and has created the church and has been establishing local bodies of the church all over the known world. The gospel is spreading rapidly, but there was also great difficulty in response to the gospel's spread. And this passage was written by Paul, not quite on his deathbed, but almost there, telling his younger brother and protege in the ministry to keep following Christ, keep going in the gospel, and keep the gospel going. Pass it on to the next generation so they can pass it on to the next generation. And the fact that we are sitting here today preaching the same truth that Paul preached is a reminder of the fact that the gospel has kept going and a reminder of by the power of the Holy Spirit, it will keep going. And so it is with confidence that we open God's word today, knowing that he uses this to change our lives from the inside out. I'm going to be preaching from verses 10 through 17 in 2 Timothy 3. Please follow along silently as I read this out loud. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version today. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings. That happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. On our recent trip, we had our family just last weekend, a couple of days before it, uh, did a loop around Lake Michigan, went up through uh, lower peninsula of Michigan, upper peninsula of Michigan, and then Wisconsin. And uh, last Sunday, actually, we started listening on our trip to an audio book called Louisiana's Way Home. It's a children's book about a girl named Louisiana who grew up in a small town in central Florida and uh, was raised by uh, her grandmother. And uh, in this particular story, She one night is whisked away by her grandmother uh, because from what her grandmother told her when she pulled her rudely out of bed, the day of reckoning has come. And what that exactly meant was difficult for Louisiana to understand, but as they drove away from Florida that that early morning and into the daytime hours, uh, lots of hardships started to come Louisiana's way and her grandmother's way. And eventually, Uh, At this kind of nasty, broken-down hotel, Louisiana 
gets a note from her grandmother, wakes up and realizes that she's been abandoned in this hotel and has a note from her grandmother saying, I'm actually not your grandmother. I rescued you from an alley while you were an infant and I raised you and that whole story I told you about your parents was a lie and I'm out of here. And now Louisiana's left all alone. And so she's dealing with one hardship after another and uh, eventually uh, she's stuck in this small town in Georgia, they had crossed over the Florida-Georgia line, and now she you know, hardly knows anybody in the world, and she has to figure out how to get home, which is why it's called Louisiana's Way Home. But she also has to even figure out what home is. Is it a place, or is it a feeling? And this whole book kind of draws this out. It's a wonderful book. I do commend it to you if you enjoy children's literature. But what I want to lay out for you, though, from that story is that in some ways our lives are like that and that we go from a place that maybe we feel comfortable and we uh, go through hardships and we eventually seek to circle our way back home, whatever that home may be. But along the way, there are difficulties and there are unexpected circumstances. There are people that are good to us and there are people that are bad to us. There are things that are joyful and we, and that we are, give thanks for, but there are also things that we could never have anticipated and never would have chosen for ourselves, much like being abandoned by someone that you had grown to trust. In these moments of hardship, we are tempted. We are tempted to give up. We are tempted to do whatever is easiest. Maybe that means cutting corners. Maybe that means quitting your job or your education Maybe it means plagiarizing. Whatever it may be, we know that hardship tempts us to give up and do what is easiest. And that was what Timothy was facing, was a temptation to give up and go home, pack his bags, and be done with this difficulty of ministry. But instead of giving up, Paul urges Timothy to keep going, and specifically to keep going in the gospel, keep The gospel going, that was the message of a previous sermon in this book, but now keep going in the gospel, keep walking with Christ, keep following Him even to the bitter end. If it is bitter on the way, you know that it won't be bitter actually at the end. And Paul gives us four ways to ensure that we can keep going in the gospel. In this passage, four ways to ensure that we keep going in the gospel. And the first is to follow the right example. This is in verses 10 through 11. Follow the right example to keep going in the gospel. Godly models will inspire you. And in contrast to the false teachers that were described in almost graphic detail in verses 1 through 9, we, we see that this is a contrast. These, this verse 10 is a contrast. You, however, as opposed to those false teachers, have followed in particular ways. Paul lists nine ways that Timothy followed him as opposed to following the false teachers. He says, you followed or you observed, you closely imitated me in these nine ways. And really, you could combine the last two, so eight ways. And the first is in his teaching. You have followed my teaching. Probably, especially, what Paul taught about the gospel And from 1 Corinthians 15, we know that Paul himself even received the gospel, and he says, I'm giving to you what I received, that Christ was uh, was crucified and was buried and was resurrected. He says, this was the gospel message, it was passed on to me, and now I'm passing it on to you. And Timothy has faithfully followed Paul's teaching about the gospel. So he followed Paul in his teaching and what he said. 
His next word here is, he says, you have followed my conduct. You followed how I lived. You followed what I did. Probably speaking specifically about the godly character that necessarily goes along with godly doctrine, right? Right truth, right thinking about the gospel results in right living in the gospel. That's what Michael Barrett, a theologian, has said. Right thinking about the gospel results in right living in the gospel. And so Paul says, Timothy, you have already followed my conduct, how I lived, what I did. He says, you also followed my aim in life. What would you say was Paul's purpose in life? If you read through letters like Romans and First and Second Corinthians and First and Second Timothy and Titus and Philemon, you could go on and on. What would you say was Paul's aim in life? What was his goal? What was the one overarching theme that he was going to die for if that's what it took, but he at least was going to live for it? What would you say? I would say it was the glory of God. It's hard to come to any other conclusion when you read Paul's letters and you read about his life in the second half of the book of Acts. He was intent on declaring and displaying the greatness of God and was convinced that it was better to live for this God and die for Him than to live how He wanted and have a long life. He was convinced it was better than anything else in the world to live for the glory of God, even if it took his life from him. Are you convinced of that? Are you willing to die for Christ? In the meantime, are you willing to live for Christ? Are you willing to put to death your sinful habits? Are you willing to develop relationships that will encourage your heart, but also the hearts of other people, all to the glory of God? Paul says, Timothy, you have already followed, you have imitated my aim in life. Then he lists several characteristics of the faithful Christian. He says, you have followed my faith, you followed what I believed. You followed my patience. You saw, Paul could say, how I waited on the Lord to work. You know, we read wonderful stories in Acts about how many people came to saving faith But not everybody did, and not everybody did right away. And so Paul had to patiently wait for God to do his work. And so we need to develop patience in our own lives, in our own hearts. We need to be patient for the Lord to work in our hearts. We also need for him to be patient as he works in the heart of our spouse or the the heart of our children or the heart of fellow church members. For him to patiently work in the heart of our neighbors. Maybe you have a neighbor who is excessively difficult toward you. And you need to be patient for the Lord to work in their lives. We need to be patient for the Lord to work in building His church, whether that be here or elsewhere, and for us to celebrate His patient work in, in creating disciples here and around the world. So Paul says, you were patient in how you waited on the Lord to work in following Paul's example. He says, you also have followed my example, followed me in love. You saw the way that I loved, Paul says. And is he talking about loving God or loving others? Probably specifically the way he loved others. But then we know that that flows from love for God, so it's hard to to distinguish closely between those. He says, I loved other people. Now you have loved other people. Keep going in that love. Don't be satisfied with past accomplishments, with the gold medals you've won in previous races. Keep running hard now. 
in loving other people. And as we talked in Sunday school, that love often simply means having a listening ear, asking good questions, opening up your home so that people can feel warm and at home enough to share what's going on in their lives. Taking somebody out for a cup of coffee or for a meal or just going for a walk around a lake, these are ways we genuinely show love to other people so that they will trust us enough to share their burdens with us. Paul says, you have followed my love. He says, you've also followed my steadfastness, how I stuck it out for the long haul. And Paul's writing this, like I said a few moments ago, very late in his life, probably the last letter that he wrote while living. And at this point, he has endured tremendous difficulty. And you read some about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where he lists the uh, hardships that he's experienced, the persecution that he's experienced. He says, I have been steadfast. I have stuck it out. And you have done it too. Keep sticking it out. And I encourage you to do the same. To not walk away from the faith, from the church, from the truth. Keep following Christ all the way to the end. Keep going in the Gospel. And then lastly, he says, you have followed my persecutions and sufferings. What he, what he experienced, maybe when he's talking about his sufferings, maybe he's thinking about what he experienced because he's a human. Things like bodily ailments and shipwrecks that he talks about in 2 Corinthians 11. And when he talks about persecutions, perhaps he's describing specifically what he experienced because of his faith and his message. And he's describing particularly sufferings at the beginning of his ministry in Antioch, in Iconium, and at Lystra, or Lystra. And so you can read about what those specifically were in Acts 13 and 14. It's actually fascinating to read those and then come back and read this again. And essentially what Paul says he experienced in Acts 13 and 14 was being stoned, was being dragged out of towns because of the message he's being, that he's been called to preach. But even after being stoned, he says, the Lord brought me out of them all. And so godly, my, uh, godly models will inspire you. And whether you have godly examples to follow around you or not, I think you do. You can look around the church body here and see godliness on display in people's lives and you can follow Christ with each other. But if you seek to serve God and keep going in the gospel, the second half of verse 11 shows us that it is the Lord who will sustain us. So godly examples will inspire you, but the Lord himself will sustain you. How does he do that? Well, for Paul, you see here in verse 11, it says that the Lord is the one who rescued me from these persecutions. For Paul, that basically meant God kept him alive. Like, he was stoned, and yet he somehow survived. Was it a miraculous healing? We don't know that. But it sure sounds like he was close to death in this particular instance in Acts 14. But the Lord kept him alive when it looked like he was done for because of his ministry. The Lord gave him physical healing and strength. And perhaps he's not going to do that for you in the same unusual ways that he perhaps did that for Paul. But if nothing else, how does the Lord sustain you? He does it, spiritually speaking, with his word. He builds you up on the truth of his word. He builds you up through godly friends. And if you don't have godly friends who build you up in your 
darkest hour. You need new friends. So find people, particularly in a church, who will walk with you through those dark hours. He sustains you with His Word through godly friends and through flying with this flock, through flying with other Christians who will walk with you through thick and thin. So to follow the Gospel, to keep going in the Gospel, to continue in the faith, you need to follow the right example. In verses 12 and 13, Paul tells Timothy that if you're going to keep going in the Gospel, you also need to expect difficulty. This is verses 12 and 13. Back in 1995, when I was my son Thomas's age, so if you want to picture what I looked like back then, the Northwestern Wildcats uh, had experienced decades of futility. Not like once in a while they had a winning season. Like every year they were horrifically bad at football. And so pretty much every school would schedule their homecoming to have Northwestern be the team that they would play for homecoming because it meant that they were a guaranteed victor that day. And so, not Northwestern, the opponent was a guaranteed victor that day. And so, coming to the 1995, the head coach of Northwestern wanted to change the mentality that the team had developed over time of just being the whipping boy everywhere they went. And so, he created a motto and put it on t-shirts and posters around the athletic building saying, expect victory. And what he was trying to do is create this mindset that, <clears throat> that this is something we should just expect is going to happen. We're actually going to win games. And they did that year. They went to the Rose Bowl that year. But saying that we should expect difficulty is a little less appealing than saying you should expect victory. But that's exactly what Paul tells Timothy here, is that if you're going to follow Christ all the way to the end, it's going to be hard. And you should expect that to be the case. Why should I expect my life to be difficult if I follow Jesus? Well, first of all, in verse 12, because history tells you what to expect, Paul says on the basis of everything that's come before him in the Bible here, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Where does Paul get that idea from? Well, he gets it from Joseph in the book of Genesis. He gets it from Moses in the book of Exodus. He gets it from David in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. He gets it from Jesus in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is a trajectory throughout the Bible increasing in its clarity that if you're going to follow God, you're going to suffer for it. And Paul is building on that tradition saying, now I have experienced this myself. And Timothy, if you're going to keep going in the gospel, you need to expect difficulty as well. Because all of those who are going to live godly are going to suffer. And so maybe your response as a Christian would be, well, if a godly life gets me in trouble, brings me hardship, maybe I just won't try so hard to live a godly life. Maybe I'll just keep my mouth shut when I'm around non-Christians so I don't have to deal with hardship, with persecution. And if that's your instinct, I would actually ask you, to pause and ask, what makes me think I'm a Christian at all if I think I can cut out the godliness factor in my Christian life? Basically, what Paul is saying is, if you call yourself a Christian, you are going to suffer. History tells us to expect that. And verse 13 tells us that these sufferings come from evil people and imposters who go from bad to worse. What this is saying is that Satan uses the same old schemes. 
Satan knows that you have weaknesses. He knows when you're weak. He knows where those weaknesses are, and he knows how to exploit them. He also knows that if he can deceive one person, that person will then go and deceive other people. And so when he talks about these false teachers who he described in detail back in verses 1 through 9, he knows that if you can get those people to be deceived, then they will go and deceive others. So these imposters he's talking about, these people who put on a mask so they can worm their, their way into the church, as he described in the previous passage, people who are snared by the devil, who are captured by him to do his will rather than God's will, Satan knows if I can deceive them, they'll then deceive others, who will then go on to deceive others. And this is why it is so desperately important that we as Christians know the gospel backwards and forwards. We can't survive in the environment that we live in right now, in the air that we are breathing without even realizing it right now, if we don't know God's Word well, if we don't know Scripture well. So how do I get to know God's Word better? By reading it and by hearing it read. And that's why you come here. How did Timothy know God's Word? By probably going to the synagogue over and over again from a very young age. And as we'll come to in a few minutes, you hear God's Word by having a Christian home, by having Christian relatives who love you. But in the meantime, if you're going to follow Christ, you need to expect difficulty. So if you're going to keep going in the gospel, follow the right example. Trust, uh, I'm sorry, expect difficulty. And third, trust the people who told you the truth. If you're going to keep going in the gospel, trust the people who told you the truth. We get this from verse 14. But you continue, again, in contrast to the evil people and imposters, continue what you've learned and have firmly believed knowing from whom you learned it. So don't outgrow your faith. Don't think that that was for me when I was a child. Now I've grown up. I don't need this anymore. You show that you are trusting the people who told you the truth by continuing to grow in it, by not outgrowing it. Don't forget the love of those people who have taught you and told you the truth. You have learned the truth, Paul tells Timothy, from childhood. You've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Where does he get that idea? Back in chapter 1, verse 5, he talked about his mother and his grandmother who faithfully taught Timothy the Word of God. Maybe he was just a child when Jesus was uh, living his ministry publicly. But Lois and Eunice heard what Jesus had done, heard about his crucifixion after living a perfect life, his crucifixion, then his death, and and burial and resurrection. And they taught it to Timothy. And they said, this is the truth. This is the story of reality. Follow this all the way to the end. Paul's encouraging Timothy to not forget the love of these people who have told them the truth. So trust the people who told you the truth. And then fourth, if you're going to keep going in the gospel, trust the power of Scripture. The second half of verse 15 down through verse 17, is about the power of Scripture and how it is through God's written Word that we grow in our faith and that we persevere in the Gospel all the way to the end. So why should I trust Scripture? These last few verses give us three reasons to trust God's Word, to keep going in it. First of all, in verse 15, the second half of verse 15, because it is for your salvation. 
the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Specifically, these sacred writings would have been the Old Testament, but then it would have been the Gospels as they were being written. It would have been other epistles as they were being written. And so Paul is telling Timothy to immerse himself in the Word of God. This is why we had a Bible immersion week back in late June, just to hear the Word of God and let it wash over us and let our minds be drenched in Scripture so that like a sponge, when we are squeezed by the hardship of life, what comes out of us is a biblical response rather than a worldly response, which is our impulse, which is why we sing songs like, Come Thou Fount, which says, I'm prone to wander and to leave the God that I love. We need the Word of God to counteract our selfish thinking, the way that we turn in on ourselves every day. So the Word of God is for your salvation. So trust the Scriptures which have been given to you. They are able to make you wise for salvation. They're able to take you from your conversion all the way to your glorification when you are perfectly made like Christ on the last day. Why else should you trust Scripture? Because in verse 16, the first half of verse 16, it is from God Himself. This is describing the origin of Scripture. We affirm this together through the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. Scripture is straight from God. Does He use biblical authors? Absolutely. He used human authors. But even what they wrote out was specifically and and in de- de- uh, great detail, from in perfect detail, from God Himself. So this is what we describe or what we know as the doctrine of inspiration, which is simply that Scripture is not a human book. Ultimately, it is a book from God. It's not just a book about God. It is a book from God, which is why we call it the Word of God. The Bible doesn't just contain the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And so we seek to let it as I said earlier, wash over us. We seek to memorize it. We seek to incorporate it into, our, into every decision that we make, into every part of our family lives. We seek to pass it on to our children by reading it to them, by telling them. In this situation, what we do, according to God, is this. It is X, Y, and Z. Not just this is what bankers would tell us. This is what CEOs would tell us. This is what athletes and musicians and actors and actresses would tell us. No, we go back to God because He has perfectly given us His Word. So we trust the power of Scripture to follow in the Gospel all the way to the end, because it is for your salvation, because it is from God Himself, and because it is for your ministry. Trust the power of Scripture because it is for your ministry. If I as a pastor, if Clayton as a pastor, if any other pastor tries to minister to you from some other source other than the Bible... Of course, we can use resources like the one we read in Sunday school today, caring for one another, which is based, it is drenched in Scripture. Simply saying, though, that if you're receiving ministry from something other than the Bible, you're going to be misled. Go back to the Bible. If you move away from here and you are looking for another church, find the church that preaches the Word of God most clearly, most faithfully. All the other details will take care of themselves. The decor, the music, the relationships, all that gets taken care of over time when there's a culture of the Word of God is supreme. And we do everything we do based on what God's Word says. And so when you graduate from college, when you move away to retire to Florida, whatever else you do, find the church that preaches God's Word and stay there and serve there. 
because God's word is for your ministry. He says this scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for four different tasks. The first is for teaching, which builds up people's faith. The second is for reproof. And you see these two negative um, works of scripture here in the middle. You have the two positives, the teaching and the training in righteousness. But you also have the reproving and the correcting. So just like when you're raising children, you don't just keep telling them the truth. You, all, you, you do that. But you also correct them when they do something wrong. If you just tell them over and over again, but don't correct them when they do something wrong, they're not listening well. They're not getting the, the, the idea. And just in the same way, we as Christians need to be corrected. We need to be told when we have been wrong, how we have been wrong, sometimes in great detail. Sometimes just a, a basic generic rebuke or reproof will, will do just fine because our hearts are so tender and so eager to please the Lord. So we need that correcting and reproving, but we also need the teaching and the training. Where do you get that? Again, you get that in the context of the local church. Yes, you should be taking in the Word of God yourself. I urge you to do that. But yes, you also need to fly with the flock. You need to be around God's people to help you faithfully walk in God's Word and be equipped for every good work. That's a powerful word there at the end of verse 17. So that the Christian, the man of God, to be generic about it, of course, specifically to Timothy, but then by implication to all of us as those following God, we want to be complete and equipped for every good work. To be equipped for something means that not just that you have a lot of head knowledge, it means that you know how to fit the pieces together. It's kind of the idea of looking at the Ikea instructions and actually getting down on the floor and trying futilely to put uh, the Ikea furniture together. There's a very big difference between looking at the instructions and putting your hands on it. And what Paul is saying is, I have equipped you through the Word of God for ministry, for every good work. I thought we weren't saved by good works. No, we're not. But we are saved for good works. And those two ideas are back-to-back in Ephesians 2. 8 and 9 says you're not saved by works, but 10 says you are saved for works. What are those works? Maybe the works you were saved to do was to walk into this building on August 21st, 2022 to tell someone the truth, to encourage them on their way, to help them endure in hardship. And I encourage you to read a book on our book table called How to Walk into Church, which addresses that very matter of What does it look like to go into church, not just for my own benefit, but so that I can sit in a particular place and have a particular kind of conversation and ask a particular kind of question so that it's not just one more Sunday going to a church. It's, I made a difference by being there today. I served someone because I was equipped for every good work by the Word of God. So that happens through hearing the Word of God. That happens by you taking it in yourself, but also hearing it over and over again. If you are a Christian, you should want to keep going in the gospel. You are going to be tempted to give up, to stop, to cut corners. But keep going in the gospel. You do that by following the right example, by expecting that hardship is going to come, by trusting the people who told you the truth, that they did tell you the truth. They weren't making this up out of thin air. And by trusting the power of Scripture itself. 
Last summer, our family trip was out west. It was far more significant than the one we took this year. There's a reason this one was so much shorter than last year's, but uh, last year we drove out to Yellowstone, South Dakota, Wyoming, and then headed south to Grand Tetons, which was also in Wyoming, and then went down to Utah. We have several siblings there in Utah. The trip was probably about four days too long, and on about the fourth to last day, we were all ready to be home, and we still had thousands of miles to drive. And so we drove down to Utah, dealt with throw up in the car, dealt with crying in the car, dealt with all the other issues in a car. <laughs> Finally leave Utah and think, okay, we just got, I think we had two days, if I recall. Maybe we built in three days. Uh, I think it was supposed to be two, and it was three. And so that tells you all you need to know. But from Utah, we get in the car at my sister's house in this super small town in southern Utah and start driving east. And I'm sitting there looking at my phone while Clarissa was driving, and it says something like six hours and 18 minutes to our hotel in Denver. And then like that, it went to like 10 hours and 47 minutes to our hotel in Denver. It's like something just happened. And then you find out that there was a mudslide and that all of I-70 was completely shut down. And so then, for the rest of that day, we are no longer on I-70. We're on all these random little back roads which have stop sign after stop sign and a 30-mile-an-hour speed limit. And it took us more like 12 or 14 hours to get to our hotel in Denver. And at that point, we had to find a different hotel because we weren't able to get to the part that we needed to get to. And so that got us one day. All I'm saying is that trip was a mess on the way home. So many physical problems, so many emotional problems. Every single person in the car was crying except for this one. And I'm talking for hours, hours of crying. Yes, thank you. And so uh, if there were some way that I could have cashed in all my chips and just had somebody pick up our car and get us home in an hour, I absolutely would have done that. You know, take everything I own, take every one I live with, I'll be fine. Just get me home right now. I would have absolutely done that. But that was not the path that God had for us. The path we had was drive the next mile, and then drive the next mile, and then drive the next mile. And the path that God has for you is take the next step of faith, and then take the next step, and then follow in the gospel the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and keep going in the gospel all the way to the end. Like Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, perhaps right now you feel like you are walking through Vanity Fair. Perhaps it feels like your best friend just abandoned you because of your faith in Christ and you feel like you are losing your way. The challenges of the Christian life are great, but the glories of Christ are far better. Follow Christ all the way home. Let's close in prayer. Our Lord, as we deal with the difficulties, the uncertainties, the betrayals of our lives, We pray that you would hold us by your upright, omnipotent hand, that we would not cave to the pressures to throw our faith aside, to let our faith be less public, perhaps, to do all we can to avoid persecution and suffering. But may we instead look at your faithful gaze from heaven and hold fast to your faithful word in our hands, the Scriptures. And may you guide us all the way to the end, even in the hardest of days. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.